I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas time and New Year's. Uh, I had a great time with family. We uh, had some Secret Santa gift exchanges, and one of the Secret Santa exchanges apparently was a cold that we passed around. I don't know who the Secret Santa was, uh, but we all seemed to pass it around. And uh, so I still have a little bit of congestion from that. You might be able to hear. I also have a little bit of a sore throat, uh, or at least hoarse throat, uh, which was not a part of the cold at all. It started last night uh, when I was eating gingerbread cookies and choked on one and had a wild coughing fit, after which I lost my voice. So I'm uh, just a a work in progress, as we all are. Beware if you go to any post-Christmas gingerbread cookies, they might strike back. Um, So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we're headed today, the first Sunday of a new year. So starting right at the beginning seems like a good place. As you're turning there, a story. I once heard a story of a wise man in the late 1st, early 2nd century, walking along a path late in the afternoon. As he walked, he was reflecting on a passage of Scripture, turning it over in his mind and in his heart, repeating its phrases, letting it go deeper each time, uh, dwelling in the Word, right? Maybe it's the passage that Bill shared with us earlier this morning, trust in God, trust also in me. Uh, Maybe it's the dwelling passage that, that we just dwelt in. Whatever the case, this man was walking along, pondering and reflecting, and as he walked, he came to a fork in the road. And he meant to turn left to go to a small village, but went right by mistake. And as he continued walking, the day grew darker. And he suddenly found himself standing at the wall of a Roman fortress that stopped him in his tracks. And then a voice came booming out of the darkness as a Roman soldier spoke from the lookout. Who are you? And what are you doing here? There's a moment of silence as he uh, kind of sorted out where he was and what was going on and who it was that was shouting at him. And finally, he shot back, what? And the voice said once more, who are you? What are you doing here? The wise man responded this time with a bit more composure and intention. And he asked, How much do you get paid to ask me these questions? And then there was another moment of startled silence as the soldier wondered, who is asking me about my wages? Who is this person? And he says, three drachma a week is my wage. And the wise man answered, I'll pay you double if you'll come to my house and ask me those two questions every morning. Who are you? And what are you doing here? These are essential questions worth being asked every single day. And it appears that much of our world is in a crisis about answering them. We live in an increasingly aimless age 
of isolated individuals wracked with depression and anxiety. And I believe that this is at least in part due to a lack of identity and purpose. Who are we? What are we doing here? Many people start off a new year with resolutions, trying to kind of invent answers to these questions, to find our purpose, to claim our identity. But just like that wise man asks to begin his days with these two questions, so Scripture begins with answers to these two questions. Who are we? And what are we doing here? So let's read and consider this morning from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He created all things. And then in verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds and the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for the gift of a new year. I pray that you would draw us near to you and help us to hear your voice today. Lord, as we reflect on the words of your scripture, we ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so by now you might be wondering, why do I have Play-Doh this morning? Why did I pick up a pack of Play-Doh on my way in? And if you haven't already, I invite you to take it out and just start working it, you know, 
forming it into whatever it is you might want to form it into, shape it in your hands, right? Um, and just, just hang on to it, right? We just read the description of humanity's creation in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, it's described like this. The Lord God formed a human from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living being. See, when God created us, he scooped up some clay and began forming us into his image. So as we continue reflecting this morning, I encourage you to use your hands. Just hang on to this. Sculpt as you listen. Maybe you want to create some little human figures. Uh, maybe something else, you know, let your imagination run wild. Let the clay in your hands this morning be a picture for you of God's tender care in creating you. And as you work that into whatever it is that you would like, uh, let's return to Genesis 1. Who are you? And what are you doing here? I want to ask, what is your view of humanity? What is your view of yourself? Many Christians throughout history have tended to have a fairly low view of humanity. Some traditions use the word depravity to describe the human condition. That's a pretty strong word, right? Um, others aren't so harsh, but still tend to have a fairly low view of humankind, summed up in the phrase, I'm only human, right? I'm only human is something that we say all the time. And so here's the question. Is such a view of humanity biblical? Is such a view of humanity actually based in Scripture? See, the Bible begins with God creating everything that exists. Light and dark, sky and sea, land and terrain. God fills his creation with sun, moon, and stars, with birds and fish, with animals. And up to this point, humanity has not yet been mentioned. But then comes verse 26, which we read. And how is humanity first described in the Bible? What is the very first way of describing humankind? God said, let us make mankind in our image. God created humanity. In the image of God, he created them. Humanity's very first description is not as depraved, as sinful, as fallen, as shameful. Rather, humanity is described as the image of God. 
the image of God. You see, we have tended to think of God and humanity as polar opposites, right? Holy God and sinful humanity. But the Bible presents us with a very different way of thinking. The Bible shows us that there is God, and then there are humans who are little pictures of God. Humans, little images of God. Quite the opposite of God's antithesis, humanity is presented as God's image. We are the image of God. Now, what does it mean to be God's image? Theories and speculations abound, often connected to some kind of human ability right? Some kind of capacity that we have for reason or for emotion, something like that. And maybe there's something to that. I believe it's actually much more foundational. Being God's image does not refer to human ability, but rather human identity. It's who we are. It's not something we perform, it's who we are. We are God's image. The book of Genesis comes from the ancient world, which gives us a context for understanding this image language a little bit more. There are two ways in particular that this language of image is used in the ancient world. One is in the context of kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms. There was a practice in the ancient world when kings ruled over a particular land, they would often place a statue or an image of themselves in that place as a symbol of their authority and their rule. So the image was a sign that this place belongs to the kingdom of this ruler. Another context that this language pops up in the ancient world is the context of worship. Last summer, uh, when Caitlin and I traveled to Greece with her family, we got to visit Olympia, the site of the original Olympic Games. And at the heart of that Olympic site are the remains of a once large and looming temple of Zeus in whose honor the games were played. This is a picture of that, uh, remains of that temple. There's, you know, one little column that's still still standing there, and everything else is just the foundation. But So not much remains of it, but nearby this site, there's a museum that we got to go look around in, and they had recreated uh, a picture of the statue of Zeus that used to reside inside of this temple. Uh, It looks something like this, gold and, and, you know, clay and and whatever else that, that it was made of, but it stood 41 feet tall. I mean, look at that little person there for scale. You see them? (laughs) Right there in the corner. Um, This stood inside of that temple where the ancient Olympics played. And this was common throughout the ancient world. 
Places had temples for a variety of gods, and temples had images of those gods. The ancient understanding was this, not that those images in the temple were the god, but rather that the image in the temple was the means by which people were able to encounter the presence of that god. Right, So people would come into this temple in ancient Greece and see that big, tall statue of Zeus, and they would be able to encounter the presence of Zeus, apparently. Right, That's the way that it was understood. So images were all over the place in the ancient world. Uh, there were images of kings that represented that king's authority and rule. There were images of gods that manifested that god's presence to the people. And this is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 1. This is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Only instead of earthly kings or false gods, we see a heavenly king who is the one true God. You see, in creation, God establishes His kingdom. And then He sets an image of Himself in the midst of it as a sign of His authority and His rule. Or, to put it another way, God builds the temple of creation, the Garden of Eden. And then he places an image of himself in that temple as a manifestation of his presence there, in that place. Later on in Exodus chapter 20, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, the second of these commandments was for them not to make any images that they would bow down and worship. Well, why? Because God had already made an image of himself. Humanity. Worshiping idols not only belittles God by turning our attention toward false gods, worshiping idols also belittles humanity because it denies that we, in fact, have been created in God's image. God has created us in his image. God created humans as signs of his kingdom and means of his presence in the world. So who are you? Who are you? You are made in the image of God. Your life is meant to be a sign of God's kingdom and a means for others to experience God's presence. That's who you are. So now for the next question. What are you doing here? Or to put it another way, how are we to live as God's image in the world? How do we live in such a way that we point to God's kingdom, in such a way that we share God's presence wherever we go? Well, Genesis 1 goes on to tell us 
It says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We live as God's image by ruling like God. We live as God's image by ruling like God. Now that second part is absolutely essential. Ruling like God, right? We don't only rule, we must rule like God. This is not a self-centered, dominating kind of rule, but rather a self-giving, generous kind of rule. Notice that right after God creates humanity and he calls them to rule, in verse 29, he gives them food. He gives them food, right? All of these seed-bearing plants are to be yours for food. But he doesn't stop there, right? He's a generous ruler. He's given food to his people. But then in verse 30, it's clear that this food that he gives is not for humans to keep only for themselves, but also to share with all creatures. The food is for them, but it's also for all creatures. So humans are given food to eat, and as rulers, they are called to share that food with all created things. So to rule like God is not to dominate with an iron fist, but rather to serve with generosity. The ruling task of humanity is described this way in Genesis chapter Two, the Lord God took the human and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We rule by carrying out our daily work with faithful, generous care. That's how we live as God's image. So who are you? And what are you doing here? We are made in the image of God. A sign of his kingdom. A means of his presence. And we do this by receiving the life that God gives and generously sharing our life for the good of others. This is the world as God created it to be. But the story does not end there. In the next chapter, deception enters the scene in the form of a crafty serpent who sows doubt about the goodness and generosity of God. He approaches with the question, did God really say that you can't eat from all the trees? Did he really say you can't eat all of it? In other words, isn't God holding out on you? The woman responds, no, we're, we're allowed to eat from the trees in the garden. And she goes on, but God did say that there is one that we must not eat from. 
So the serpent responds again, Oh, God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. This is a lie. Do you know why it's a lie? The serpent is telling her to eat the fruit and that when she eats the fruit, she will be like God. It's a lie because she's already like God. She was made in the image of God, right? It's a lie to think that in order to be like God, we have to anything. We're already made in the image of God. The very first lie is essentially this. Well, you're only human. You're only human. Don't you want to be like God? And it's a lie because to be human is to be like God. Humans are the image of God. But she believed the lie. And so she grabbed for her identity that which was meant to be received as a gift. And we have continued to do the same ever since. God has given us the gift of being made in his image, meant to show forth his kingdom and his presence in the world around us, but we have grabbed at our own identities. We have grabbed for our own kingdoms. And instead of ruling like God, with service and generosity. We rule as we want, with domination, with force. Instead of ruling as allies between male and female, we rule as adversaries over and against one another. All of this is because we stopped receiving God's gift of identity. And instead, we grabbed it for ourselves. So how's your Plato going? What have you made? What do you have there? Anything fun? You still, still forming it in your hands? I like what I see. So if you haven't already, um, or, or before we get there, uh, I just want to say, to be made in God's image is this. It's, it's to be constantly shaped, constantly formed by God, right? Constantly in his hands. He formed them. He breathed his spirit into them to continue shaping and forming them as they live as God's image. Now, if you haven't already, just set your Play-Doh down. And just let it sit there. Those of you who've played with Play-Doh before, 
Have you ever accidentally left it out overnight? Or um, failed to actually, you know, seal the container when you put it away? What was it like when you found it? It gets dry. It forms cracks. And it begins to crumble very easily. This is exactly what happens to humanity. Apart from being in the hands and with the Spirit of God. We become cracked. We become dry with hard hearts that easily crumble. We do not receive what God has given. And so we fail to adequately adequately be images of God in the world around us. We no longer point to his kingdom. We no longer manifest his presence. We no longer look like him. We no longer have his fingerprints pressed into us because we've grown dry and cracked. And so how will creation be restored when the ones made to be God's image in creation no longer show forth that image? What we need is a new and a true image of God. So in Colossians 1, Paul is describing God's redeeming work. And in verse 15, he breaks into what's typically understood as a hymn, an ancient early hymn of the church. And the very first line of this hymn goes like this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. You see, the story of God's redemption begins with Jesus coming as the true and perfect image of God that humanity had failed to be. When it says that he is the firstborn over all creation, it's saying that Jesus has come to show us what creation was meant to be. He's come to show us the way that God meant things to be, how he meant for humanity to live and function as his image. And this is exactly what happens in the life and ministry of Jesus. Remember, images are meant to be signs of a ruler's kingdom, meant to be a means of God's presence. Well, Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. And he came manifesting God's presence as as he served and as he healed those who were in need. Jesus came to be the perfect image of God and to restore the image of God in his followers. He proclaimed the kingdom of God. He carried the presence of God. He showed the generous, sacrificial rule of God by dying on the cross for us. And he made a way through sin and death by his resurrection. 
All of this shows us what it is to be God's image. And that's why Paul describes the purpose of God, the goal of God's people like this. Those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Our goal as followers of Jesus is to be formed into the image of Jesus. To be formed into the image of Jesus and to be restored to our original purpose. Images of God in the world. Jesus came to make us truly human again. Jesus came to heal and restore the image of God in every single one of us. And so what does it look like to be formed into the image of Jesus? Well, that's next week's sermon. For now, as you continue into this new year, may you remain in the hands of our good God, filled with His Spirit as He shapes you and forms you into the image of His Son. Amen.